0: Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I am so, so excited about this one because the individual I'm about to interview has to be one of the most interesting human beings I have ever met in my life. William B. Helmrich is in his 70s and he walks more than 30 miles every single week. He's also in love with New York City and decided that the only way to truly understand New York City was to walk virtually every single block of all five boroughs, which is 6,000 miles and he did that in more than four years period. He's also written 16 books and has been featured in the New York Times, Newsday, the Los Angeles Times, and has also been a guest on Oprah Winfrey Show, The Larry King Show, CBS Morning News, and many, many other news outlets. Guys, I promise you, if you read his books and dive into his work, this man will help you challenge your own limiting beliefs and help you think outside the box. It was an absolute honor to have conversation with William, and share his wisdom with you guys. And I truly, truly hope you get out of this conversation as much as I did. So, without further ado, everyone, William Helmrich. Hey, William, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, good. So, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started with this project.
1: Well, uh, when I was a kid, my father and I played this game. Every weekend, from the age of 9 to 14, we uh, we took a subway to the last stop, mm-hmm. and then we walked around. And uh, um, when we ran out of last stops, we went to the second to last stop, to the third to last stop. Over a period of five years, I really grew to love and appreciate the city. The city is great. It's the world's greatest outdoor museum, and it's free. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I think I got involved. Why do I say I think? Because... <laughs> For 40 years, I didn't do any books on this subject. I did books on the Black Panthers, the militant organization. I lived, worked, and traveled with them. I was their liaison officer. Oh, wow. I did research in Haiti. I lived in a village in Haiti. I did research on survivors of tragedies like the Holocaust, like war. Uh, I did a book on why smart people do dumb things and how to avoid them. And then suddenly, 10 years ago, I got interested in New York. Now, it is true that I had been teaching a course on New York City and sociology for more than 40 years. Uh But I never wrote anything about it. One day, the chairman of my department walked by, he said, you know, you teach so much about New York, why don't you write a book about it? I then decided I was going to do 20 streets, and find 20 streets that were representative of the city. But I soon realized that this was a conceit. How could I determine which 20 streets? Is 26th Street more important than 27th, or Mm -hmm. 28th, or 25th? No. How do I know? Mm-hmm. So I reluctantly concluded that I'd have to walk all of it. Reluctantly, because how was I going to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's like going to Nepal <laughs> and climbing a mountain. You do it one step at a time.
0: Sure.
1: In other words, right now, for example, I'm mm-hmm. doing a book on Queens, The Queens Nobody Knows. Oh, wow. And you may not be aware of this, but the, the success of that first book, The New York Nobody Knows, led to a contract with Princeton University Press to write another five books, one on every borough. And so I am re-walking the city. After walking 6,000 miles, I'm going to do another 5,000 miles. So the Brooklyn Nobody Knows came out three months ago. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Manhattan Nobody Knows, uh, I'm still working on a little bit. That's going to be out next year. Right now I'm doing the Queens Nobody Knows. Queens, in this particular case, the, all these books are guidebooks. They're mm-hmm. like books to, to show people who want to come to New York City. There are 55 million tourists a year. You know, how to get around the city, how to see the things besides Manhattan, mm-hmm. Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, etc., etc. et cetera. And uh, Queens has 45 neighborhoods.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I have to walk 45 neighborhoods. The area of Queens is 109 square miles. That's huge. I walk about 30 miles a week. Oh, wow. How did I do the New York City book? 30 miles a week, 120 miles a month, 1,500 miles a year, four times 1,500, 6,000, you're there. It's as simple as that, but it's not as simple as saying it. You have to do it.
0: Did you ever get, like, walker's block? Like, were there days where you're like, why am I doing this?
1: I did. um, But just to finish, on the Queens issue, Mm -hmm. um, 45 neighborhoods. How do you do 45 neighbors? It sounds so enormous to go through every neighborhood. I mean, you know, it would take weeks to go through one neighborhood. Well, you don't think about 45, you think about one, two, three, four, five. I'm up to neighborhood number 17. I started a few months ago. If I had thought about 45, I couldn't have gotten to 17. In other words, when they say one day at a time, you have to do it. One day, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's the same. Okay, one day at a time. And uh, Uh, That's really the answer here. Now, as far as walker's block goes, Mm -hmm. sometimes when you walk too much and you write too much, your brain gets a little bit exhausted. Mm -hmm. When that happens, when when you're walking in a neighborhood and you're not seeing anything special or new about it, no special building, no special store, no special person, you have to take a rest. What you do is you go back home, you start reading, you start writing. And that way, you get your energy back again. Anytime you do something too much, it's like if somebody gave you your favorite food for 30 days to eat. By day 14, you would be sick of it. It's mm-hmm. not by day 5. So, uh, I do that to recharge my batteries. But I have to tell you something. I I, I, I don't have writer's block, uh, basically, to be honest. I mean, I don't. I, uh, I, I, I've never had writer's block. Some people have writer's block. Writer's block... It's like a condition, but it's not, you know, sometimes you're just not that creative. I've had better days than other days, Mm -hmm. but I don't have writer's block because I don't have time for writer's block. (laughs) I'm too busy. Um, I am 71 years old. Wow. And uh, my body has just so many years left. And if I don't do these books quickly, I'm not going to get them done. So there's no time for writer's block. And when I write, I only write one draft. I don't rewrite anything. I'll talk into a tape recorder, then I'll go to my office, I'll write everything, but I won't write everything. In other words, I'll listen to a tape for an hour, I'll only use up 15 minutes of that hour. But I know what I want to use, and I use it right away, and this way I don't have to do it again. So, like, in each of these five books, I walked each borough in about a year, and wrote the book, at the same time. Wow. Wow. You know what they say? They say, if you want to get something done, Mm -hmm. you give it to a busy person. (laughs) Why? A busy person is busy. The reason is that a busy person, and I'm the same, does everything immediately. Because they're afraid that if they don't do it immediately, uh, they're not going to get the rest of their stuff done. Mm -hmm. So they end up doing everything right away. So they get everything done.
0: Is there a way you manage your time or?
1: Yeah, by being very disciplined. I only sleep five hours a night because sleep is a waste of time.
0: (laughs) Except (laughs) for health reasons. Really? Only five well, hours?
1: Yeah, but it's a biological thing. Some people need seven. If you need seven, you take seven. In other words, if I woke, how do I know I only have to sleep five? Because I'm not in a bad mood when I get up, I get my work done. <laughs> if if I had only, you know, if I slept uh, seven, seven hours, I would lose two hours from my time. Wow. Like right now, uh, I, I know that right after we finish this discussion, I have to go back and I have to write for four hours. And then I'm going to some kind of dinner. So I have to write for four hours. I don't have an hour. If you, if you want to write a book about walking New York City, which is, as you know, 6,000-plus miles, there's no time for checking. You can check your email five times a day. You're going to get nothing to done. When people procrastinate, when people delay doing things, uh-huh. they may be fooling other people, but they're not fooling themselves. Oh, I couldn't get to it. I was too busy. But you know you're lying to yourself. And the point is this. When I have like six things to do, uh-huh. I do the hardest thing first, not last. What? Because if I do the easy things first, it's always in the back of my mind that I have to do the hard thing, and then it's affecting my concentration on the other things I'm doing. When I get the hardest thing out of the way, I have more energy to finish the others, because I know I did the baddest thing, the worst <laughs> thing, the hardest thing.
0: So can someone cultivate that kind of discipline? Because I know a lot of people that procrastinate. I mean, I procrastinate a lot, too, so... How can one cultivate that level of discipline?
1: It's very hard to do that. Um, you know, a, a characteristic like discipline um, or controlling your anger or things like that are partly biological and partly by environmental. In other words, <clears throat> there are certain traits we're born with. We don't mm-hmm. know how and why. We don't know what parts of the brain affected. Mm-hmm. There are other traits we cultivate. So like... To discipline yourself is to discipline yourself. In other words, to not do that thing mm-hmm. that you that you know you shouldn't be doing. And if you do that thing, often enough, mm-hmm. the reward will be that you know in your own mind that you succeeded in doing it. But if you don't have a drive to succeed, it's not going to help.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's say
1: a person is uh, depressed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if, if their depression comes from internal problems they have, well, then they have to relate to those problems. They have to address them. The first step to correcting a mistake is to admit you made one. Mm-hmm. If a person has a chemical imbalance and makes them depressed, then they have to take medication. But if they don't want to take medication, and if they think they know everything and don't want to listen to the therapist, they're not going to get better. So how do you get to the state where you want to listen? It's something innate. Sometimes it's how your parents raised you, mm-hmm. your parents taught you. And uh, sometimes it's who your friends are. And sometimes it's just the mood you're in. And the best thing to do is, if you're in that kind of mood, accept it. Don't fight it. It'll go away eventually. Try not to focus on it. Um, why did I want to do these books? I don't know. But you know what? I didn't spend any time thinking about why. I just decided I want to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. I have the same attitude towards everything in life. People ask me, why? how did you walk in these neighborhoods and not get killed?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't have a fear instinct. I don't have it. Did I you build that, or no? I don't think I don't think I'm a brave person. A brave person overcomes their fears, but if you don't have any, there's nothing to overcome.
0: So when you're walking the deadliest neighborhood in New York,
1: I just believe that nothing's going to happen to me. Wow. And nothing has so far.
0: Were you ever scared? No,
1: I, I, I'm not scared. I've I've been in a lot of difficult situations. I've gone over a cliff in a car. I've I've uh, had somebody point a gun at my head and threaten to kill me in a minute. Wow! I've had a lot of a lot of difficult things happen to me because of the work I do. Usually gets mm-hmm. me into trouble, but uh, I have no death wish, so I get out of trouble. I want to die, but you know, I have children. I have three children. I have a wife. I have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. But um, I just. I I, I don't have it. I always believe that whatever situation I'm going to get into, I'm going to get out of. And that belief carries you through. Because when you have that attitude and you really believe it, Mm -hmm. other people know it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I teach, I taught 240 students at City College last last semester. Mm -hmm. That's the largest class in the school. And I'm an old guy. I'm not 25. I'm not 35. So what is that? It's a question of crowd control. They have to know when I walk in that room that I mean business. And if they don't know it, they find out inside of three minutes. Because I tell them what the rules are, and I tell them what's going to happen to them if they break it. And I tell anybody who doesn't like it can leave the room and drop the class. And that's <laughs> the time. And I don't have any problems. I
0: mean, I want to be. You
1: fearless. can go and rate my professor. <laughs> you can and you can look me up, and you'll see what they say.
0: I mean, I want to be fearless like me. Is there a way can to
1: I? be? You, 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 the only way you can do it is by practicing, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, being fearless is not such a good idea. It's, what, it's partly what gets me into trouble. You know, sometimes I miscalculate. So, In other words, being fearless can get you killed.
0: So what did you do when someone was putting a gun in your head?
1: At that moment, I just stood there because I had no choice. I didn't have Where was another that? gun. I was working with the Black Panthers, and they had gone up to Chicago to do a coalition. With uh, another militant organization during the late 60s. This was the modern black movement. Uh-huh. The blacks were talking about it. You know, if, if you went to Ashlands, you certainly know about these things. So. And um, they were meeting in a church downtown with a group called the Black Peace Stone Nation. And they told me to meet them down there. The group I was with was from another city, St. Louis, Missouri. I walked in, but nobody had told them who I was. And they thought I was a cop. They said, okay, mother, we're going to kill you. And they got put a gun to my head like this. Oh and he was God. about to pull the trigger because I was interrupting a militant meeting, a revolutionary group. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of my guys happened to come out at that moment to say, it's okay, he's with us, thus was my life saved. Coincidence sometimes saves your life. In doing the New York City book, wow. I never really had a serious threat, except towards the end when I walked into a housing project, a public housing project. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I saw this guy... My, my way of dealing with people who look like they might be members of gangs like the Bloods that encouraged uh-huh. me, I held it and I said, how you doing, buddy? And they melted. And the reason they melted, yeah. well, it caught them off guard. They expected yeah. me to put on my game face, my tough guy face. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Unless you, unless you prepare to kill somebody, that's not a smart move. Don't show attitude. Show no attitude. Uh-huh. My wife said to me, I'm afraid you're going to get killed. Don't walk in these bad neighborhoods. You walk in these neighborhoods Saturday night, 2 in the morning. You're going to get killed. I said, I'm not going to get killed. I said, but you know what? I don't want you to worry because I love you. So here's what we're going to do when we visit our children in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Let's go walk to some really bad neighborhoods in Los Angeles because that's really gang country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, we're going to take a 20-mile walk. And at the end of that walk, we're either going to be dead or you're not going to be afraid of her. <laughs> She's alive. I'm <laughs> alive.
0: You said that to her? Yep.
1: Yeah. I said, do you trust me? She said, yes. We've been married 46 years. She should trust me by now. So we walked through these neighbors, and every time somebody looked at me, somebody looked like a hoodie, somebody uh-huh. looked like a guy's going to make trouble, uh-huh. right? They were so shocked that I walked up to them and engaged them that they left me alone. Okay, pops, we're doing fine. How are you doing?
0: Wow.
1: And And... This time, however, it didn't work. I walked into this housing project in Brooklyn, Uh Whitman Ingersoll Projects, in Uh downtown Brooklyn, Uh off of Flatbush Avenue, and um, I said, how's it going, my man? And he was a teenager, he was about 16 years old, Uh and he was wearing sunglasses on a very cloudy day, which to me meant drugs. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. And I said, how you doing? He didn't say anything. He talked into some box that he had, some yellow box, and all of a sudden, seven heads bobbed up on oh, a wow. grassy oval separating us, and these guys looked at me, and I realized he had communicated with them. I also realized that I had probably walked into a drug deal. Wow. And even though, if you look at my short hair and my build and everything, people could think I'm a cop. Yeah. Uh, if, if somebody's looking at a 25-year jail sentence and there's one cop who knows what they're doing and the rest don't, they're going to kill him. So I realized what had happened here. I had just walked into this drug deal that was in the making. So I said to the guy, later, my man, have a great day. And I walked out of there in the opposite direction, as slowly or as fast, depending on how you want to look at it, as my dignity could carry me. I didn't want to break into a run. You don't want to show any kind yeah. of fear or apprehension, but I wanted to get out of there. I could feel this part between my shoulder blades moving. I thought the bullet is coming, but um, it didn't come. And were, that was the evidence.
0: Were you scared? How were you able? to A little bit, t-
1: a little bit. I was scared because I, you know, I prefer living to dying. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to die unless they're crazy. But uh, um, I don't have this. I was assigned to interview terrorists in the Middle East.
0: No! Wow.
1: A Hamas organization. What was that? That was 2002. I was uh, I was a senior advisor to a film about the Middle East, in which they were interviewing people from Egypt, from Israel, from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, from everywhere. Uh-huh. And my job, because of my nature was, I was getting paid for it, was to interview masked terrorists, leaders of terrorist organizations. Wow. And I was really at their mercy. If they had decided to kill me, what am I going to do? I'm in the middle of nowhere. So
0: did you in went Gaza. to the
1: Middle East? Oh, wow. I was in Gaza.
0: I did you meet
1: them? Yeah, I interviewed the head of uh, of Hamas, Abdel al TC. A few months later, he was killed. Wow. So, yes. So, you see, walking in New York City takes a lot of uh, uh, abilities that, that people don't realize. For example, you have to have a good memory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I covered 121,000 blocks.
0: How did you calculate that? Or how did you... Sanitation
1: department... Does cleans all the streets in New York City. There are six thousand one hundred sixty-three miles of streets that are walkable, that are inhabited. Mm -hmm. They're not counting parks, for example. Uh, I walk six thousand and forty-eight. You don't have to walk every block. I Mm -hmm. walked almost every block. It's one hundred twenty-one thousand blocks. So that means I have to remember them. Do either of you live in the city?
0: No, I live. I used to live in the city. I live in Queens now, and she lives in Queens too.
1: It's very interesting how you frame that. Queens is part of the city. It's a (laughs) borough. The city is often, no, it's not wrong. The city Middle is often street. referred to as Manhattan. Well, yeah. most, most tourists who come here only stay in Manhattan. So where did you live in Queens?
0: I live in Ridgewood.
1: In Ridgewood. What street?
0: I live in Fresh Pond Road.
1: Fresh Pond Road. Yeah. Fresh Pond Road has a couple of Polish delis. Yes. It's not far from Myrtle. Now, you have you, good memory. I, that's what I was going to say to you. If you want to do, do a book on New York City, you must, you must have a good memory. I know how Fresh Pond circles around, I know where it starts, I know where it ends, and I'm not from Fresh Pond Road, I'm not from Myrtle, I'm not from Metropolitan, I'm not from, uh, um, you know, any one of those streets that are around there, Cornelia, whatever, but I notice it. When I see something, right, if you if you came across me eight years later, right, uh-huh. I would know exactly where you were sitting, that you put your hand in front of your mouth, and that you your sister put her hand on her head. <laughs> I will know that and I will remember it later on. I will remember this room.
0: Wow. So, you do different projects. You wrote a book on Auschwitz. You wrote a book on Black Panther. How do you swift from researching on Auschwitz or researching on Black Panther to researching on New York? Well,
1: the guiding guiding, uh, light is sociology. Mm. I study people. People of people. It doesn't matter where. I do market research too. I do research on why people buy cookies and why people buy laminate floors. I do research for politicians. I worked for Bill and Hillary Clinton when they were running in nineteen eighty. Wow! He was running for governor. I, I for me the whole the whole guiding is people people in different situations. Auschwitz is different from the Black Panthers. Black Panthers are different from Haiti. Mm-hmm. Haiti is different from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But it's all about people. So it really isn't all that different. But you are correct in that most academics, when they take a topic, that's what they do their whole life. Mm-hmm. And other was if somebody specializes in uh, in studying the family, mm-hmm. the sociology family, they do the family their whole life. My mind is a little more restless. Mm-hmm. Once I have grasped, you know, 80% of what you need to know, you find out in the beginning. Then you spend the rest of your life doing the other 20%. I don't want to do that. I want to do the 80. The 80 is more interesting than the 20. The 20 is just what's left over. So let's say you were studying... Uh, um, you know, uh, manuscripts in Greece. Mm-hmm. By the time you got done with 15 years of, ca- of your career, you know everything that you need to know about these manuscripts. Why? Because you've been spending all day studying them. Mm-hmm. So what should I do? Spend the rest of my life to find out the little left that's left? Mm-hmm. I'd rather do a different topic. I love doing new topics. I, I am always teaching new courses at the college. Why? Because I get bored. Once I teach the course once or twice, I know mm-hmm. it. I know what I'm doing. I don't want to talk from my yellow notes. You see, if you talk from your notes, you're going to sound like it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't have any notes in front of me now. I didn't bring along my book. Don't have to. I know what I have to know or what I, what I want to know. Also, an important thing to remember about book writing is there's many ways to write a book, and all of them are probably correct. <laughs> in other words, it isn't like there's only one way. If I in New York, 20 people could start in New York and come out with 20 different books. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're studying the streets, it's the streets. Mm-hmm. But what is it on the street that captures your attention? One person is captivated by a store that sells African clothing. Another one is captivated by a fast food restaurant that has interesting paintings. Mm-hmm. Another one is captivated by a man who runs an aquarium store and has a passion for fish. They're all good topics. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do all of them. You can do any one of them. It would be interesting. It's not what you do. It's how you do
0: it. So I want to move um, to a different topic. Mm-hmm. You say you do human behavior and you wrote a book on Auschwitz and how people from concentration camp when they came to America, how they made, you know, their life so successful. Why do you think people who have been in a very difficult situation, when they come to America, are more successful than most people?
1: Okay. This really depends on a number of things. In my book, I identify ten traits that people who made it had. Mm-hmm. Not all of them made it. Most mm-hmm. of them made it. But not all of them. And what were those traits? The traits were first, flexibility. Mm. When you come to another country, you have to be flexible. Let's say you were in Russia and you were an engineer or a doctor. Then you come to America or you were in Nepal or India or Pakistan or mm-hmm. any country and your credentials are not accepted. Well, then you may have to go into a different profession. Let's say you were a doctor. Okay, so now you have to become a nurse or a pharmacist or something else in the medical field. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you don't have time to go seven years to medical school here and you don't know the language, etc., etc. The second one is assertiveness. You mm-hmm. have to be assertive, aggressive. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to say you can do something sometimes, even if you're not sure. Mm-hmm. How did some people survive the concentration camps like Auschwitz when a Nazi said, Who who here is a shoemaker? A guy who was an electrician said, I'm a shoemaker, because he wanted to live. And so he lived. Mm-hmm. So one of these survivors told me a story how he came to America mm-hmm. and he needed a job and it was a McDonald's type place and they needed a chef so he said he was a chef. He says, it was terrible, he says, I practically burned the place down <laughs> I got fired but I learned how to be a cook mm-hmm. and the next job I got, I kept. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to be willing to say you can do something even if you're not sure. Mm-hmm. So that is a another trait. Another trait is tenacity. Mm-hmm. Let's say, well, I don't know, you go to concerts? Sometimes. Like what? The
0: I mean, sc- I haven't been to many concerts. I've been to like three concerts. Okay. It
1: doesn't matter which one of the three. Yeah. But let's say you find out that all the seats are gone, right? hmm And you want to go. So you know what you do? You go. And you stand outside. And you say, I'm going to get a ticket. Somebody's not going to show up. That's how you get in. You're a tennis <laughs> open, whatever it is.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so that's called Tenacity. Another trait that the people who made it had was optimism. Mm. You know, they always talk about the glass being half empty or half mm-hmm. full, right? If you look got it as half full, you're going to get a lot further. My wife is a worrier. She always worries about things. I say, <laughs> sweetie, you don't have to worry about everything. I said, you know what? I said, uh, do me a favor. I want to know what you're worried about. Write down everything you're worried about right now. Mm-hmm. Write it down. She wrote down about 20 things that she was worried about. So the children <laughs> be healthy will I get this job. You know, will I sleep well tonight. Well, I may be able to make it for my appointment tomorrow. You know,
0: so you guys are very different. Pardon? you guys are very different.
1: Mm, she's not afraid either, but she's she has no fear, and I would trust her more than almost anybody else with me. But not, but different in this respect. Mm-hmm. I told her. I she says, but you never worry about anything. I said, that's right. She said, why? I said, I'll tell you why. Because if I worry about it, before it happens, I'm going to ruin my day. Mm -hmm. And if I worry about it and it doesn't happen, I wasted my time. (laughs) So, but she wrote down all the things she worried about. I said, let me have that piece of paper. I took it from her. And I put it in my pocket. She says, what are you going to do with it? I said, don't worry. I'm not going to the nearest TV station and ratting you out. (laughs) I said, but I want to keep it. Two months later, I took it out again. I said, okay, Helene, let's see what came true. Nothing Eighteen out of twenty things did not come true. I said, "You see, you worry for nothing all the time." Well, she still worries, <laughs> and this goes into the point that you raised before about mm-hmm. biology. Some people biologically can't help it if mm-hmm. they worry about things, and uh, there's nothing yeah. you can really do about it except try to control it. Mm-hmm. But you can't can't always eliminate something. Mm-hmm. Like when I read the news, right? How do I read a newspaper like the New York Times, which I have to read because Mm -hmm. I'm teaching classes, you know, I have to read the New York Times. How do I read the newspaper and get through with the newspaper? Very simple. I divide the news into two areas. Mm -hmm. The news consists of two things. Trump will have a hard time confirming (laughs) Gorsuch. Okay? That's one story. Story number two, the Senate confirms Gorsuch, Mm right? Right. The second one I read, the first one I don't. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. I divide news into articles about things that will or will not happen mm-hmm. and articles that deal with things that did happen. Why should I read an article about something that will or will not happen? If it, if it will not happen, that's
0: so smart. it's a waste of time. Yeah, no, that's if really it will smart. happen, mm-hmm.
1: then I have to read it twice. First when they said it will happen, then after it happened. Mm-hmm. I'd rather wait till after it happened. That cuts the amount that I have to read in half. And
0: worry, yeah.
1: Don't think about it. Does wow. it, you know what? You can't control it anyway, so why bother?
0: That's such a good technique.
1: Well, it's a technique, but it, it, if it works for you, it works for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work for everybody. You know, like I told you, saying these things is hard. I once talked to an eighth grade class about writing, mm-hmm. how to write a book, because I've written maybe 16 of them. So I told him, I said, let me tell you something about writing. You want a class about writing? I said, I'll give it to you. Very simple. Writing is not about sharpening a pencil. Mm-hmm. It's not about thinking about writing. It's not about talking about writing. Writing is not about taking classes on how to write. Writing is writing. Simple. Cut the bullshit. Just start writing. And and after, you know, maybe the first page or you so your writing will be garbage. Mm-hmm. But eventually the garbage will clear out of mm-hmm. your head and of the paper, mm-hmm. and you'll be writing. Mm-hmm. So that's the way in which I did it. To go back to the trades, Mm -hmm. so optimism. And uh, uh, the the other thing is that you have to, uh, you know, another thing was intelligence. Mm. Now, intelligence doesn't mean that you can study physics necessarily. Intelligence means what we call common sense, the sense that the average person has. In other words, there, there are people who told me that they survived... In Nazi Germany, because they thought quickly. They knew right away which way to go and what to do. That's like being quick thinking. It's not deep thinking, but it's mm-hmm. quick thinking, and it could save your life. Another thing is that you have to be able to distance yourself from the experience. In other words, the people who made it in this country were not the ones who dwelt on what happened to them in the past. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who created some distance between what happened to them. They took an attitude of, that was then, and this is now.
0: Mm-hmm. Live in the present.
1: Right. And the other one
0: mm-hmm.
1: is having group consciousness. People who belong to a group, whether they were Christians, Muslims, whether they were members of a Chinese affinity group, mm-hmm. or whether they were members of a music club, they, the people who belonged to organizations that did mm-hmm. things found it easier to sort of drown out the terrible things that they might have thought about otherwise. Okay. So, There was that, and then there was assimilating the knowledge that they had survived. In other words, you go through a terrible thing, and then something else bad happens. So you could say, after everything I went through, this is the last straw, I'm never going to make it. Or you can say, after everything I went through, this is nothing. Isn't that what you said to me when we started this discussion? Mm -hmm. Didn't you say to me, you used to think, oh, I'm so sad about this, I'm so sad about that, and then you went to Auschwitz, and you Mm -hmm. said, after what these people went through, I didn't Mm -hmm. go through anything.
0: Absolutely.
1: that's the positive attitude that will make you make it.
0: Wow. That's cool. um,
1: yeah, you got a shot.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: And another thing is finding meaning in life, finding a purpose, something to do.
0: So a lot of people I talk with, I'm 23 and most of my friends are in their 20s, and they are having a really hard time finding purpose in life. If you want to, what would be the quickest way to find your purpose or find something that... It, like...
1: isn't, it isn't easy because in order to find a purpose, you have to find something that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, fortunately, in this generation, in the millennial generation, people have the luxury of trying to find something that will make them happy. Absolutely. Even I say to my own children, well, as long as you're happy. But, you know, in the old days, people had rotten jobs. They just waited for the weekend. Work was not considered something that was fulfilling. Work sucked. I mean... was something you did because you had to do it. And then you couldn't wait for the weekend when you could do what you wanted to do, like go to the movies, go to a rock concert, read, write... Walk, hike, drink, smoke, whatever you <laughs> want to do. Today, people have the luxury of finding it, And the problem is when you have too many luxuries, nothing seems to make any sense.
0: Yeah, that's and so that, true. Yeah.
1: And very smart people have bigger problems than people not smart. But very smart people spend so much time. They see so many options, so mm-hmm. many choices. They spend so much time thinking about which choice that in the end they can't make any choice. Mm-hmm. You know, they found, they found out that when they did studies where that people whose IQs were high, but just below the genius level, 10 points below, 130 instead of a 140, did better than mm-hmm. people who were very smart. When you're too smart, you see too much. It's no good. The person who's not that smart just gets down to it and said, okay, do it. I'm going to do this thing. Uh, I had a student like that who came to me this semester. I want to see you. I want to see you. I said, I don't have time. I've got 240 students. She <laughs> says, in high school, my, my teachers always gave me a lot of time. I said, well, you have a choice. Go back to high school or live without it. <laughs> so so what did she, said, say? Oh, she said, no, she came to see me. She said, I'm very, very depressed. I think I'm going to kill myself. I said, why? He was a black student, lived in Brooklyn, went to Brooklyn Tech High School, one of the top three high schools in the city of public high schools. I said, Starion, why want why to kill yourself? She says, I want to be a writer. I've, I've researched you. I know you write books. I want to be a writer like you. And I, and I feel now that even if I write a book, it's not going to matter. I'm going to be here for 70, 80 years, and then I'm going to be gone and everything. And, and whatever I do in my life, I'm just one person. I'm such a small person. How much can I contribute to the world? And I'll be forgotten anyway after I have done. I said, Sam, life isn't that bad. I said, we all have this problem. We all know. I said there were presidents of the United States who were presidents in 1890. Nobody even knows their name. Mm-hmm. Anybody know Benjamin Harrison? This president of a whole goddamn country. Nobody knows his name. <laughs> Did he know when he was president that he'd be forgotten? No. And that he's only one of 20 others who are yeah. forgotten. You know, big guys that's like uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, they're remembered. So uh, I took her to the counseling department. and She talked to somebody. You know what happened? She never talked to me again. She sat in the front row. She did all her notes. She walked around like she was stolen or something. She <laughs> had a big smile on her face, but she was one of only three students in the whole class to get a 100 on the final.
0: Wow. <coughs> so
1: she found it. Listen, you're one person. You're going to have to accept your limitations. I accept the limitations. It doesn't matter if 75 million people... Had you know, you know, uh, uh, heard me or saw me on a television station. The majority of the world didn't. And you were
0: in Oprah too.
1: I was on Oprah. Yeah. Yeah, I was on an Oprah. <laughs> and nobody remembers that either. Years ago. <laughs> well, you saw it.
0: I tried to find in YouTube,
1: but yeah, I don't know YouTube anymore. <laughs> that, but I had a very interesting time in Oprah.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um, the fact of the matter is, who's a rich person? A rich person is a person who's happy with what they have. I had, before I wrote a New York book, mm-hmm. I was very happy with my life. Mm. Now I'm also happy with my life, but that's because I realized that there are limitations to what I can do. Happiness has to come from within. It cannot come from without. That, that if I had my whole life to live all over again, I would do it exactly the way I did it. There's mm. nothing I would change. It's not because the life I picked was perfect. Mm-hmm. It's because I have high tolerance for not being satisfied in the sense that whatever life I would have chosen, I probably would have been happy with, because my attitude is to try to make the best of whatever happens to you. Mm. And uh, uh, that is not dependent upon accomplishment. If you don't come to an understanding of why you're so driven to accomplish, then uh, you will never address the reason why you feel such a desperate need to accomplish.
0: How do you come to the understanding that... Why you are so driven to accomplish something. For
1: me, it isn't really driven. It's more that I enjoy it. In other words, when when I go walking, I've often called my wife when I'm walking and said to her, you know something? I've never been happier than when I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And I'll tell you why. When I go to a neighborhood to study it, I don't prepare for the neighborhood. I don't read up about the neighborhood. I just go. That way, my creative juices are flowing because I'm just looking around and I'm looking to see if I'm going to see something. And I always do. I almost never come back empty. But you see, if I decide in advance, if I create an outline, then I am going to be tempted to follow the outline. And as a result, I'm going to make it. Like you're doing an interview right now. You prepared your questions.
0: Yeah. I don't mind. Uh-huh.
1: But the best way to do an interview is to feed off the answers. In other words, to think about what you want to think about. Like what you said a few few moments ago when you said, this is what my friends are always asking, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, um, How do I find something that has some real meaning in life? Mm -hmm. You see, when you feed off the question, your questions are more spontaneous. And the only thing you have to have is a general idea Mm -hmm. of what you want to know. What makes this person tick? Why did he do this or that? But you don't have to... Outline your questions mm-hmm. one through ten. Don't be afraid that you'll look down at that phone and you won't have a question to ask. Mm-hmm. You will. Supposing you were having a conversation with me. Would you have written down the questions? <laughs> Supposing you went on a date with somebody. Did you write the questions down.
0: <laughs> it's a conversation. I mean, maybe. No, I'm kidding. Maybe. <laughs>
1: but only because you're kidding me. So, uh, tell I me. I got about five minutes.
0: Sure. Um, um, quick question. If you want to recommend some books to our listeners.
1: Um. Well, for one thing, I would recommend the book that I'm reading right now. Take a look at it. Mm. No, look at the spine so you'll see the title.
0: Up, oh, The Grows in Brooklyn? A Tree Grows a tree. in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's about
1: a novel about yeah. um, life in, uh, in Brooklyn.
0: Okay.
1: The Life in Brooklyn in 1900. Okay. It gives you a sense of history. gives you a sense of perspective. You know, of what things mean. Um, another book I would recommend would be Albions Seed, A-L-B-I-O-N-S Seed, Mm S-E-E-D. It's the story of one of the immigrant groups that we never study here, white people who came from England and Scotland and Ireland. Oh, wow. And the reason it's interesting is that it shows you how this country was founded and the principles and values on which it was founded. Mm -hmm. And it shows you how the people who came from that part of the world really came from four very distinct regions in the British Empire. And, and they each had different philosophies, different approaches, different ways of, uh, of uh, uh, looking at things. Um, I would recommend um, reading 1984. Okay. I would recommend reading The Great Gatsby. These are books that people mm. read I in high school. The Stranger by Camus. These are all great books. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, they're worth reading. Uh, the Devil in the White City. I would recommend. Uh, I forgot the name of the author, but it's about Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book well worth reading. I would. Uh, I'd recommend Hillbilly Elegy. It's number one on the bestseller list today the Times. I read it.
0: Okay.
1: It's about people who come from the mountains of uh, Tennessee. Uh, I would recommend Siddhartha.
0: I love Siddhartha. Yeah, it's such it's a great, a great book. book. Yeah. He
1: looks at the river. The river's yeah. constantly flowing. That's a great, an, great, an book. great book. Yeah. Um. I I read about forty fifty books a year, so wow. I a of, have a lot of had a lot of reading that you See. I always have a book with me, even yeah. when I go to the even even when I go to the uh, uh, the bank. If I go to Citibank, which happens to be my bank,
0: uh-huh.
1: if I go to Citibank and uh, and I have to wait online, I always take a book with me. I don't want to be standing there doing nothing.
0: You're like uh, life goals. Well,
1: but these are things. These are things that have to do with with who I am. I don't say everybody has to have them. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's good to do nothing and just think.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: yeah. it's also a creative enterprise.
0: Mm-hmm. If you could give one advice to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give?
1: 20-year-old self? Yeah. Enjoy life. It won't be that much fun (laughs) later. The reason is you're young, you have all your energy, you have all your strength, and you have the world before you. Mm -hmm. You have to make choices. You have to make right choices. But also understand that your emotions are at a much sharper, higher level than people who are older. And therefore, you're much more prone to disappointment also. To unhappiness mm-hmm. as well as to happiness. But accept it. Take it in stride. Later on, you'll mellow out. By the time you're 35, by the time you're 40, you'll mellow out. The best thing I could say at this particular point in time is treat every day as though it's your last day on Earth. Mm-hmm. You'll get much more out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Last question. I know you have to leave. What's your definition of courage? Of courage? Yeah.
1: Courage is the ability to accept your limitations. Courage hmm. is the ability to admit you were wrong. Okay. Courage, courage is the willingness to stick your neck out for somebody else, even if it's going to hurt you.
0: Hmm.
1: Like I have, I know somebody who's here uh, illegally. They're undocumented.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're a good person. They've been here 15, 20 years. They never learned to speak English. I want to help them get into this country legally. So I went to a lawyer. And I told them, I said, you got to help this person. I went to an immigration lawyer. Mm -hmm. I said, you got to help this person. And they said, well, it's going to cost some money in order to help him. I said, don't worry, it'll be taken care of. I'm going to pay for the person. You know why? I almost never do a favor for somebody that I'm sorry about later. Nobody ever got sick from being nice. And the courage is to say that even if it costs you money, and even though that money might ordinarily go to your children or to yourself or whatever it is, you could survive it. You could survive it. I get satisfaction from doing things to help other people. That's why I went with that student to the counseling service. The biggest reward for me was that she got what she wanted. You want to know what was the most satisfying experience now Mm -hmm. that I think about it, about teaching? Mm -hmm. I had a student in my class, this was in the 1980s, an intro class. She got a 96 out of the midterm. I said, Tara, that's a pretty good grade. And she said, yeah. I said, "So, but sociology is an easy course. What do you do with the tough courses like chemistry and math? She says, I have a 3.6 average. I said, really? She was a black student from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. I said, so what are you going to do with yourself? Are you going to be a somebody in this world? She says, yeah. I said, what do you want to do? She says, I want to be a nurse. I said, you want to be a nurse? That's great. I said, but you have a three six average, and you take only difficult courses. Why don't you be a doctor? She said, doctor? I can never be a doctor. I said, why not? She says, "It's just not in my family. I said, what made you decide to be a nurse? She says, well, my mother was a nurse's assistant. And she said to me, Tara, you ain't going to be no nurse's assistant. You are going to be a nurse. I said, Tara, did you ever hear of affirmative action? You know what that is? They said, that's an opportunity for black people and other minorities to get jobs because they were discriminated against in the past. You think that's going to last forever? Some conservative guy will become president will be over. So, so she said, yeah, so what should I do? I said, go try to be a doctor. She says, I can't be a doctor. I said, that's bullshit. You can be a doctor. I said, you come with me. Mm-hmm. And we went downstairs to the counseling office. And I walked into the office, and there were all these women. Some of them were black, in fact. No brotherly or sisterly mm-hmm. love here. They said, we're we'll going to lunch. I said, what do you mean lunch? She says, we have time now. We'll go to lunch. I got so mad. I said, you people are supposed to be helping people. You're supposed to be helping students. This is an emergency. because if this student doesn't talk to someone now, mm-hmm. she's never going to do what I'm telling her to do. <laughs> I said, so here's 20 bucks. Get yourself a better lunch than the one in the cafeteria. This is in the 1980s. $20 is oh, wow. worth more. I said, you take this 20 dollars and you counsel this student. Tara, she continued in the class. She got 100 and everything. Three years later, I get a letter from her. She says, I'm in my first year in downstate medical school. Wow. Thank you for changing my life. That is what made my life.
0: Oh, my you God. You give up yourself. Me chills.
1: It's the truth. And you know what? A couple of years ago, I looked her up with my wife on the Internet. Mm-hmm. She's a doctor somewhere in Texas. Now, when you feel that you could have changed somebody's life, that's worth a million bucks. Man, there's no money that can buy that. There's no amount of good dinners, vacations, whatever highs you get out of life that can make up for that. That That's the most important thing that you could do.
0: Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, LimitlessGrid.com for show notes.